0: Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, coming in live once again and solo. Today, we're going to talk about an interesting couple of stories I found that I thought were particularly riveting. All three of these articles have to do with either kidnapping or disappearances or strange disappearances, but the first one is Innocence Sold, Kidnapping, Human Trafficking, Murder, What Happened to Missing Teen Sophie Reader? This article was written by Brittany Wallman for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. It was after midnight, and her father was asleep. 15-year-old Sophie Reeder slipped out of her Fort Lauderdale home wearing a black short skirt, high-top sneakers, a leopard print coat, and headphones. Her hair was neatly twisted into side buns. She took nothing with her. In her bedroom, she left a stack of cash, a diary, and a date mysteriously marked on her calendar. Maybe she thought she'd be back to blow out the candle she'd left burning. That was five and a half years ago. Somebody knows what happened to Sophie, but not the police, not her parents, and not the private investigators who tried to find her. Despite powerful evidence that she fell into the hands of a sex trafficker, the Fort Lauderdale Police Department's handling of her case diminished the chances she'd ever be found. Sophie's case was part of the South Florida Sun Sentinel's year-long investigation into child sex trafficking, a vile crime that is relatively easy to get away with in Florida. Sophie wasn't a runaway, or a foster child, or an abused daughter, like many girls who fall under a predator's sway. She was a middle-class girl with two parents who loved her, parents who had the means to help. Friends and family saw red flags, but no one realized quite what they were seeing. Her case shows that sex trafficking is common, hiding in plain sight. In Sophie's cell phone, police found messages she sent a friend discussing prices charged for commercial sex acts. There were so many cases in our local community and the average person has no clue, says John Road, a former South Florida cop who has searched for Sophie for five years. If I ask 10 people what is human trafficking, most are going to say it's a container on a ship and there's 50 Haitian people packed into the container like the movies. Most of the cases are just young runaway girls that get mixed up with the wrong person and sooner or later they can't get out or they can't be found. Although most of their stories aren't told, children are reported missing every day in Florida. Last year, 2,166 kids were reported missing in Florida, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. All but 145 of them were eventually found. These children, runaways, and other missing kids are among the most vulnerable to sex trafficking researchers have proven. Their stories are eerily similar. A girl with low self-esteem meets an attentive older man. He may offer gifts, compliments, promises of a better life, or even love, but it's a trap. And finding them is an overwhelming task for local police. The year Sophie went missing, the Fort Lauderdale Police Department Missing Persons Unit had just two detectives and an aide to handle nearly 2,500 cases. When her father reported her missing, they didn't look for her, or at least not initially. They sent him home, assuring him she'd be back within a week. After seven weeks of utter silence from Sophie, police carried out a search warrant at the apartment where a felon was living, the man Sophie called last. The police department denied repeated requests from the Sun-Sentinel for interviews for the case file preventing anyone, including Sophie's family, from knowing what they've done to find her. The department has had five chiefs since Sophie disappeared. The latest chief, Patrick Lynn, declined to discuss the case or to allow those involved with it to talk to the Sun Sentinel. He believes we have provided you with all of the information that is available at this time related to this active case, spokeswoman Casey Linneg wrote in an email. During the Sun Sentinel's reporting of this project, though, the police department in May offered its first reward in Sophie's case, $25,000 for key information five years after she disappeared. In September, the day after declining the Sun-Sentinel's most recent request for comment on the case, the department announced the creation of a new Endangered Persons Unit, where missing persons cases would benefit from a team of experts in human trafficking and child exploitation. The department declined to say whether the renewed attention to Sophie's case was an impetus for its new unit, whose seven detectives and one sergeant could dramatically improve outcomes in cases like Sophie's. The agency said there are thousands of internal emails about the unit's creation, and the newspaper would have to pay about $16,000 to obtain them. Unwanted, unloved, lonely. If Sophie is alive out there somewhere, she's 20. Her room in her dad's home in Citrus Isle in Fort Lauderdale remains that of a girl with one foot still in childhood. Pink walls, a doll collection, a bear in a pink dress on her bedspread, its nose bitten off by Roxy, the family dog. But beneath the surface, Sophie was floundering. She was caught between battling estranged parents. She was attending high school online from home and was mixing with a dangerous crowd. She was distant and seemed depressed. I'm used, unwanted, unloved, lonely, she wrote in her diary. I'm like the penny you dropped under the sofa. But you don't care, because hell, it's just a penny. Her computer screensaver now in police hands poses a question that remains unanswered. Where do all the sad girls go? She felt very misunderstood, said her lifelong friend, Eliza, who asked that her last name not be published. She didn't want to go to regular schools. She didn't want to be around these, you know, regular people. When you feel like you are alone, feel like nobody gets you. Sophie was in the middle of puberty, figuring herself out, said her aunt, Kristen Milhorn, a school teacher. She was looking for affirmation for someone to tell her she was amazing. Her dad could have told her that a million times, she said, but it wouldn't have been enough. She was easy prey. On her bedroom calendar, Sophie had marked one date, May 19, 2017. Nobody knows why she marked it, but it was, in fact, a remarkable day. It was the last time anyone in Sophie's family saw her. The week leading up to Sophie's disappearance was an emotional tempest, not unusual for a teenage girl. She was, at turns, hopeful and happy, then despairing and lost. Nicole Twist last saw Sophie on Mother's Day, five days before her only child vanished. Sophie sat across from her at a Sweet Tomatoes restaurant in Fort Lauderdale. She seemed like a different person, super talkative, talking about how beautiful she was, how she could be a model. She was going to go to California and marry Quentin Tarantino, Twist said in an interview with the Sun Sentinel. All this stuff, she was going to change her name? She told me that. When I look back, I just want to knock myself in the head." The conversation that day may have been just the latest warning sign for twist, but she didn't know at the time how dangerous Sophie's situation had become. In a Facebook photo from that afternoon, Sophie is smiling in a white dress from the restaurant booth. A week later, that photo of Sophie would become a missing child poster. She spent her last day at home gluing artificial flowers to her computer wall, mirror, and bikini. She put Daisy in her father Patrick Reader's hair, and they snapped a photo together, their last. Her friend, Brooklyn Sharp said Sophie was unusually down that day, saying she felt like nobody. Around 11.30 p.m., Patrick Reeder saw Sophie pacing inside the house and told her to go to bed. Then he fell asleep, he said, and that was the last time I saw and spoke to Sophie. Late night walks weren't unusual for Sophie. Reeder allowed his daughter to come and go, family and friends told his son Sentinel. Sophie's parents were in conflict. Court records show, especially about custody and parenting of their daughter. And Sophie, who was in the care of a therapist, was lashing out, sometimes violently, against her mother. A judge granted Reeder full custody in 2015. Twist said her friends at the time counseled her to accept it. One of her latest communications to Reeder was to insist that he get their daughter back in school. They never spoke about her disappearance. Milhorn said that her brother is by nature laid back and non-confrontational. He did his best parenting an emotional teen girl, she said. It's just a hard time, Milhorn said. Pat did everything he could, and you know, there's no manual for kids, especially teenagers in this day and age. So on Saturday morning, May 20th, when Reader poked his head into his daughter's room and found it empty, he wasn't alarmed. He saw the candle burning and thought she'd lit it and gone on a morning walk, he said. Two days passed before he reported her missing, and Reader told the Sun Sentinel that he believed she'd be back on her own. When she didn't turn up on Monday, the quiet mortgage consultant drove to the police department. He was met with nonchalance. That lady I did the report with on Monday morning, she said, they'll usually come back within a week, he recalled. I was like, okay, there must be this timeline. I had no detective experience, just what I see on TV, and that's it. On May 25th, five days after she vanished, the police put out a missing child poster. There were five sentences, including this. Reader suffers from undiagnosed depression and anxiety. For Sophie's family, the line suggested police saw her as just another troubled runaway. That's the issue, reader said. They treated her like a runaway and didn't put the full force of the law in there and get to the bad guys. When police did investigate, they learned that something far more tragic may have happened to Sophie. A search warrant granted two months after her disappearance listed just how grave police came to believe her situation was. They sought to search a convicted felon's apartment not far from Sophie's house. It listed the potential crimes being investigated as kidnapping, human trafficking, and murder. Police determined that Sophie stepped out while her father slept. She retraced a walk she had already made earlier that night to Jay's place. According to one of the new Fort Lauderdale police documents released to the Sun Sentinel, Sophie often called Leonard J. Jennings a 37-year-old felon. At the time... He had 31 felony charges, 9 felony convictions, and 3 imprisonments, mostly for theft, drugs, and assaults. Only her father, listed in her phone as Papa, was in the call history of Sophie's phone as frequently. Her friend Brooklyn said Sophie knew Jennings from the neighborhood and that Sophie usually went there to buy marijuana. While that might explain Sophie's first walk to the Jennings apartment that night, it's her second walk there hours later that is the enduring mystery of her case. Brooklyn said she didn't understand it. Sophie left home and walked in the opposite direction from Jennings' apartment, police established with phone records. A couple hours after leaving, she turned back toward the neighborhood and called him. Her casual saunter was captured by a surveillance camera as she headed westward down Davy Boulevard near the Brightline tracks. A Broward Sheriff's cruiser passed by the teenager without stopping. She walked to 1725 Southwest 11th Court, a drab fourplex where Jennings was staying with his mother and brothers. At 3.07 a.m., she called him again, police records show. Her phone remained at the Jennings address until 9.13 a.m., when it then ceases to transmit any records thereafter, the police report says. Jennings' number was the last number she ever dialed from that phone. All three Jennings brothers have lengthy felony records and were questioned, police records say. They all denied ever knowing, seeing, or communicating with Sophie, according to the police document. These lies directly contradict all of the obtained records and statements from friends regarding Sophie Leader's relationship with the Jennings family, Fort Lauderdale Police recounted July 11, 2017, during a search warrant application. That search warrant was executed at the Jennings apartment the next day, almost two months after Sophie disappeared. The search was led by Detective Allie Adamson, an expert at the agency in child sex trafficking, according to the search warrant. Police took 25 cell phones, two media players, three tablets, one journal, headphones, a hard drive, two computers, ammunition, a wig, a camcorder, and three digital cameras. But nothing belonging to Sophie was found there. They waited another year and went back after the Jennings family had moved. This time, police dusted for fingerprints and used chemicals to check for blood. Investigators took a few items, including a silver butterfly charm, but nothing helped them to solve the case. When reached by phone on February 22, 2022, Leonard Jennings denied knowing Sophie. They came in and searched the place and took me down to the Fort Lauderdale Police Department and asked me a few questions. That was it, Jennings said. I didn't know what happened to her. I can't answer you on that, man. I don't know. If I knew anything, I would let the police know when they took me in. Ma'am, I'm going to have to call you back. Is that okay? Is it okay if I call you back? He didn't call back. His mother, Orna Jennings, also denied having any information about Sophie. She didn't go missing at my apartment, she said in a call with the Sun Sentinel. i never seen her. Pressed with the evidence, she changed her tack. I mind my business and go to church. I don't trying to be in no one's business. Nearly four years after Sophie vanished, the lead detective in the case, Jennifer St. Jean announced a new detail during an interview on national television. If true, it would have been explosive. She said that Jennings had a neighbor, 41-year-old John Mobley, who was surveilled by police and was believed to be involved in human trafficking. We did surveillance on multiple locations in that area, and um, the information that we obtained indicated there was some sort of operation going on, she told host Callahan Walsh, brother of Adam Walsh, who was kidnapped in 1981 at age six from Hollywood, Florida, at a mall and murdered. St. Jean went on to say that Jennings had called Mowbray at 5 a.m. when Sophie was believed to be at the Jennings apartment. The bombshell revelation wasn't exactly true. A police spokesman later contradicted St. Jean, telling the Sun Sentinel the call wasn't made that night. Still, police say there was a connection between Jennings and the man suspected as a trafficker. Police told one of Sophie's family members that Jennings called Mobley at 5.17 a.m. on May 23rd, three days after Sophie disappeared. Court records show that around the time Sophie disappeared in 2017, Mobley lived at 1721 Southwest 11th Court in an apartment directly across from the Jennings unit. Fort Lauderdale police say Mobley is a suspected trafficker, though he has no trafficking arrest. Despite that, Fort Lauderdale police did not question Mobley, St. Jean said in a March 2021 interview on the Walsh's program. We knocked on his door with flyers of Sophie. He used very explicit language and told us to get a search warrant. So there's no cooperation whatsoever, St. Jean said on the show. The agency was unable to get a search warrant. No evidence has tied Mobley to the case, and the agency told the Sun-Sentinel he could not be reached by reporters for comment. Another member of the Jennings family, Leonard's nephew Christopher Jennings, may have also been in contact with Sophie. Her friends told the Sun-Sentinel, nicknamed Goonie Goon, he was 28 and had a criminal record, and the two talked on the phone and were friendly. His name surfaced when police searched the apartment building record show, and he spent time at the Jennings place, sometimes broadcasting live on Facebook. After her disappearance, Christopher Jennings agonized on Facebook posts about hearing voices. He became homeless and lived on the streets, he wrote in May 2018. The Sun Sentinel was unable to make contact with him. Fort Lauderdale police declined to say whether Christopher Jennings was questioned in Sophie's case. Family members dismissed. Fort Lauderdale police shunned and alienated those trying to help find Sophie. A former lifelong Miami-Dade detective who was given and taken gunfire volunteered to help Cole Twist find her daughter and has worked on her case for free for five years. The week she disappeared, he said he'd called her phone repeatedly multiple times a day. It went straight to voicemail. Finally, on a Sunday soon after she vanished, Sophie's phone rang. In an adrenaline rush, he contacted the detectives working on Sophie's case, but three days went by before they responded. By then, Sophie's phone was off again. Road was fuming. Novak told him to butt out or he'd be arrested for interfering in an account the department hasn't refuted. I read you loud and clear, the man said he retorted. I hope one day your daughter goes missing and the case is assigned to you, Detective St. Jean." Like Roden and Twist, Sophie's father and aunt were vexed over what they called lack of urgency by Fort Lauderdale detectives. Milhorn was shut out by police after she took a lead role for the family this year, pressing the agency for answers. In a March 2011 2020 letter to local and federal elected officials, Reader and Milhorn wrote that the FLPD never seemed like they cared whether they found her or not. They relayed an example a private detective found an Atlanta escort ad online last fall with a photograph that was a 97% match for Sophie. The resemblance was uncanny, they wrote. As Milhorn pressed the agency to look into it, Reader in an email said they'd only communicate with him and Twist. Twist, Sophie's mother, said she'd been treated coldly. She said that without any evidence, Novak in 2019 told her he believed Sophie was dead, something he'd never told Sophie's father. Would police bother looking for a girl they'd written off as dead? She doubted it. He said, well, we think she's deceased. That's what he told me, and I started crying, Twist remembered. What they said was, we know based on the people she's hanging with that they aren't good people and we think she's deceased. I left in a ball of tears. Then, two years later, in 2021, Novak and St. Jean went to Twist's house to retrieve a series of text messages Twist received from McDaniels, one of Sophie's friends. She thought the text about Sophie's connections to the men at the Jennings apartment might lead to a breakthrough. St. Jean asserted in a recent video that the case haunts her and she thinks about it all the time. But at Twist's home that day, she didn't even greet or speak to Twist. In fact, Twist said, St. Jean didn't even look at her. And despite being promised an update about the potential new evidence, Twist said the officers never brought it up again. Although no one knows what happened to Sophie, it's clear she had entered into the world of commercial sexual exploitation. Observed from the Instagram application on the cell phone was a lengthy conversation between Sophie and her best friend, where they were discussing prices related to performing commercial sex act, according to police records. When police interviewed the friend, an unidentified 15-year-old, she admitted considering joining Sophie and working in the commercial sex industry, but never followed through. Sophie's email address was a suggestive handle. When Sophie was 14, Twist already had her suspicions about her daughter's activities. Sophie was living with her for a short time and used Twist's iPad. I found that she had visited a sugar daddy website, Twist told the Sun Sentinel. Sugar daddy websites charge men to connect with younger women. The women are ostensibly 18 or older, but in Sophie's case, that isn't always true. Of course, I confronted her about this, Twist said, but she denied it. After Sophie vanished, her father looked at her computer, too, and he also found she'd been visiting those websites. Her friends, said Sophie, told him about her online activity. She has mentioned, like, she wanted a sugar daddy when she was younger, but I always thought it was a joke. This is what happened. Sophie was on a website. She was talking about it like the sugar daddy thing and everything like that, and she said she was meeting up with people, but I never believed her. I thought she was just saying stuff to seem cool or whatever. Sophie told her one man had paid her $400. Others say they saw her standing on a corner near where she went missing, dressed like a prostitute, in early May 2017, just weeks before she disappeared. Sophie's dealings with adult men had already turned ugly. She'd been raped in a hotel room, her friends say. Although her diary doesn't name names or recount specifics about what was going on in her life, one entry does shed a little light. Sophie wrote, what to do when I'm 15, make 10 new friends, go to the beach three times a week, get 10 sugar daddies. Twist says she worries when she looks at young girls. In any small group of them, one of them will be sexually exploited. Sophie is not the only one. We worry so much about stuff that is meaningless, Twist said, but we aren't protecting our kids, and that's the truth. If you have any information on the disappearance of young Sophie Reeder, you can contact Crimestoppers USA, 1-800-222-TIPS, and these tips can be made anonymously. Next story. The 100-Year-Old Mystery of Missing Perfume Heiress Dorothy Arnold. And Allison McNeary wrote this article. On December 12, 1910, 25-year-old Dorothy Arnold left the Upper East Side home she shared with her parents to enjoy what everyone around her thought would be just another ordinary day of a young heiress about town. Naturally, she was dressed to the nines. Dorothy wore a navy blue serge suit with a high-neck white lace jabot which was a Victorian-style ruffled piece. Her hands were clad in tan gloves, and she carried a large black fur fox muff for extra warmth. It doubled as a safe place to stash the $25 she had of her monthly allowance, as well as whatever money remained from the $36 she had withdrawn from the bank for a luncheon the previous day. Her dark brown hair was in a full pompadour, which was covered by a large black velvet hat. She accessorized the look with a lapis lazuli drop earrings, gold twist lovers knot ring, and an imitation tortoise shell comb, and a carved barrette. You wouldn't be wrong to think this sounds like a report from one of the day's illustrated issues of Vogue. We know what she was wearing because when she failed to return home, a detailed drawing of her costume eventually ran in the papers, looking eerily like a fashion spotlight on a woman about town. Dorothy told her mom she was off to shop for a dress to wear to her sister's coming out party, though when her steps were later tracked, they didn't go near the proverbial racks. Whether she failed to make it that far or whether she followed the time-honored tradition of fibbing to your parents about where you're actually going, we'll never know. What she did do is brave the bracing air of a Manhattan December day to walk 52 blocks down Fifth Avenue. First, stopping to buy some chocolates, charge to the family tab, before ending up in a bookstore where she ran into a close friend who later reported nothing seemed to miss. After that, she vanished. It's been over 100 years since Dorothy Arnold went missing and it's safe to say the trail has gone cold as that December day. While rumors have never died down as to the mystery of the missing heiress, not one shed of evidence has suggested an answer to the question that plagued a family and a city for over a century. Mother will always think an accident has happened. In the wake of her disappearance, Dorothy was, by all accounts, the picture of a mostly proper young lady. She had plenty of friends, socialized as a good socialite should, and did more than keep up appearances. She followed the dictates of dear mom and dad and did what every good girl was supposed to do, although one does have to wonder if her parents were chapped that their daughter was still unwed, seeing as how the average age of marriage for women at that time was around 21. But the silence of history echoes when it comes to the inner lives of young women of that period, especially when their papers were mysteriously burned more than a year later. What is known is that Dorothy was a happy co-ed, having graduated from Bryn Mawr and that she had dreams of living the bohemian life of a writer, but her family was not supportive. Her father came from money and made considerably more of it as a partner at FR Arnold & Co., an importer whose main product was perfume and cologne. When he died in 1924, he would leave nothing to his missing daughter, who he had long since believed was dead. But that was nearly 15 years off, and he had enough money in 1910 that when reporters finally got wind of the missing girl, they went ahead and dubbed her an heiress. Being an heiress is nice and all, but Dorothy wanted to be a writer. To that end, she asked her parents for permission to move into an apartment in Greenwich Village, presumably to be where the other creative people were. The answer was a categorical no. Mr. Arnold brushed off her dreams of independence with the short pronouncement, a good writer can write anywhere. So that's what Dorothy did. She wrote a short story and submitted it for consideration at McClure's. It was then that Dorothy made a decision that would come to haunt her, she told her family. A 1960 story in American Heritage recounts they all began teasing her unmercifully about her literary pretensions. As is the experience of most first-time writers, her story was politely rejected. But Dorothy received that rejection while living at home with no support for her dreams. In the words of a news account, Dorothy now found life a torment among her amused relatives. So not all was fox for muffs and roses for the Upper East Side heiress, but there was one other area which she had defied her family's expectations, love. Dorothy had the gall to enter into a relationship with a man who was definitely not approved. George C. Griscom, Jr. was 42 when Dorothy went missing. It's hard to imagine what Dorothy saw in the man other than a chance at a little independence and rebellion. Not only was he much older than the women he met as a student, but he didn't have a lot going for him in looks or personality. He was a dumpy, middle-aged man who still lived at home and whose life consisted mostly of following his parents around. Despite the restrictions of a young lady of Dorothy's stature, the two still managed to steal away over the years, the most recent liaison occurring the summer before Dorothy went missing. Despite her subterfuge, the summer jaunt was allowed under the ruse that Dorothy was visiting a friend from college. It later became known that Dorothy's parents had gotten wind of Junior and were not happy. When asked about his restrictions on his daughter's love, in the press conference announcing her disappearance, Mr. Arnold became enraged. It is not true that I objected to her having men call at the house. I would have been glad to see her associate more with young men than she did, especially some men of brains and position, one whose profession or business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. But Grishcom wasn't the only one whose actions veered into Shady. In the initial days after Dorothy failed to make it home, her family seemed more focused on protecting their reputation than finding their daughter. The minute Dorothy didn't show for dinner, the Arnolds knew that something was wrong, and they phoned several of her friends, ending their calls with a request not to share that their daughter was missing. When one of the friends called back a few hours later to inquire if Dorothy had been found, she was told that Dorothy was now home, but that she couldn't come to the phone because she had a headache and went right to bed. The family didn't go to the police, they claimed they didn't want the publicity, instead they called a lawyer friend of Dorothy's older brother who was asked to play something of a detective role. One of the things he found when he initially searched her room was a pile of now unrecognizable papers smoldering in the fire. The family claimed she must have burned her latest unsuccessful manuscript. When the young lawyer turned up no clues, the Arnolds hired the Pinkertons. It was the renowned detective agency that finally convinced them to publicize the disappearance, Six weeks after Dorothy walked out of the house, they finally reported her missing to the NYPD. It was then that Dorothy's disappearance swept the nation and the police insisted that Mr. Arnold make a statement to the press publicly announcing the search for his daughter. He offered a $1,000 reward and the tips started rolling in. Dorothy must be the well-to-do young lady who showed up at a Boston hospital with amnesia. It was her body pulled out of the East River. No, she was selling shoe polish in Chicago, or she was in Richmond sending secret telegram messages to a friend in Atlantic City. Scratch that. She was living in L.A. under a different name, or she was the rich woman found in a Philadelphia sanatorium. We the coverage is just to wonder how many affluent young ladies of unknown identity were languishing in the U.S. hospitals in 1911. But it seems that each and every one was suspected to be Dorothy Arnold. Her family followed every lead, and at one point it was reported that her mother had gone missing, only for Miss Arnold to turn up in Europe on the hunt for her daughter. As the days ticked by and no shred of evidence was found, speculation set in. First, there were those who believed that Dorothy, fed up with the restrictions at home, decided to take her life into her own hands. She pulled together the little money she had on hand, told her parents she was off to run errands, and then left with nothing more than the clothes on her back to start a new life for herself. This theory was bolstered by a riverfront merchant who claimed the mysterious young woman of apparent refinement had given him her jewelry in exchange for clothes to disguise herself as a man. The more bleak take on the dissatisfied heiress theory was that she committed suicide in a state of dejection about her failure as a writer. A letter she had recently written to Griscom had the puzzling line, Mother will always think an accident has happened. Speaking of Griscom, some thought she had run away to be with him. He was in Europe at the time of her disappearance, and naturally with his parents... And professed no knowledge of her whereabouts he then very publicly came back to the states to help with the search a darker side of the speculation about his involvement suggests dorothy had died in the course of beginning a back alley abortion and that he had put on the front and stayed silent about the tragedy and finally there was her stalwart father while his wife and son ran around the world chasing leads mr arnold became convinced early on that dorothy had been kidnapped and murdered probably in central park While his contention that her body was dumped in the reservoir was unfounded, it was frozen at the time and no body has ever turned up, he believed from the early days of the investigation that Dorothy had somehow been taken in plain sight in the middle of a crowded city and killed. The fact is, any one of these theories could be true, and each is equally plausible, as well as equally puzzling. It's hard to believe that any one of these scenarios could have left no mark in the 100 years since Dorothy disappeared. The only fact that is known for sure is that one day, a 25-year-old heiress with dreams of being a writer went out for a walk. Like a whiff of perfume, she vanished into thin air. And one last disappearance for the day, and that is the disappearance of Patrick McDermott. Patrick Kim McDermott was born September 18, 1956. He was born in Seoul, Korea. His mother was Korean and his father was American. He was placed for adoption by his mother and then subsequently adopted by an American family when he was about two. His birth name was Kim Chong Nam. He married the actress Yvette Nipar in 1992 and they divorced in 1994. They had one son together, Chance McDermott. McDermott then filed for bankruptcy in 2000 and received a court order to pay overdue child support to his former wife. At the time of his disappearance, he had been in an on-and-off-again relationship with Olivia Newton-John for about nine years. When Olivia Newton-John met him and they began a relationship, McDermott had been working as a lighting designer. Fast forward, June 30th, 2005, McDermott was on a fishing charter boat in San Pedro, Los Angeles. He was a passenger on the boat, which left from the San Pedro Marina for a 22-hour overnight fishing trip. McDermott was a frequent guest on these overnight fishing trips and had booked the trip by himself. There were 22 other passengers and crew, but he did not know any of them. There was also no headcount on the boat when it disembarked. After he disappeared, some of his personal belongings, including car keys, his passport, and a wallet, were found on the boat, and his car was found to be parked near the marina where he left it. No one appeared to have noticed his disappearance until July 6, 2005, when he failed to show up for a planned family event. He was officially reported missing July 11, 2005, but the story didn't get any press coverage until a month later. An extensive investigation was held and was eventually closed September 15, 2006, when they did not find any evidence of criminal action, suicide, accident, or hoax. A separate United States Coast Guard marine safety investigation looked into the conduct of the fishing vessel that McDermott had booked the ride on, and that was also closed October 30, 2008. Both of these investigations concluded that McDermott was likely lost at sea. Since his disappearance, there has been a lot of speculation about McDermott and that perhaps he faked his own death. His case was actually featured on America's Most Wanted and a 2009 episode of Dateline NBC, where investigators went to Mexico to look for him undercover, believing that he might be there hiding. Some investigators suspected that McDermott disappeared to avoid debt, including about $8,000 he owed for back child support. A website was created, findpatrickmcdermott.com, for the sole purpose of trapping McDermott. When the Dateline special aired, visitors from web addresses were logged and mapped. The Dateline investigators believed back in 2009 that McDermott was living on a boat off the coast of Mexico. They continued to track the hits on their website, and the investigators claimed there were about 20 sightings of McDermott's in both Mexico and Central America. January 2009. Again, investigators alleged that he was alive and well in Mexico and asking to be left alone. Here's the official statement that was released by Philip Klein, who was hired by Dateline to find McDermott. Quote, Since the airing of the Dateline NBC story and the media coverage of this story from around the world, we, the investigators in the case, would like to say thank you to all of you from around the world who have helped us track McDermott down. Our team cannot ever say enough thanks to the people and governments of the United States, Mexico, Brazil, and Panama, as well as Interpol and other federal agencies that have communicated and assisted us in this case. On February 10, 2009, Our firm received the fax from a small city in Mexico near Acapulco in the state of Guerra, off the Pacific coast. After investigating the letter sent to us by fax, we began to investigate its origin. Since that time, we have been in phone contact with a representative of McDermott. We find this representative credible. We are currently in negotiations with this representative and will make an announcement when necessary. Please understand that we are all using caution due to the current issues Mexico is facing and the safety of our staff. As well, we ask all of you, including the media, to remember there's a young man out there that would like firm and clear answers as to why his father is missing. Please keep him in your thoughts. We will make a formal statement and announcement through our friends at the NBC Dateline at the proper time. That being said, this group of private investigators hired by Dateline alleged that they had located McDermott and that he was alive and living in Mexico in April 2010. They claimed to have tracked McDermott down after noticing that there was a collection of IP addresses on the website they had set up. The addresses led investigators to a site near Puerto Vallarta where they claimed McDermott had been living under an assumed name, Pat Kim. However, McDermott's ex-wife, Yvette Napier, disputes this claim In March 2012, she wrote to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos and asked him to stop promoting Klein's book, Lost at Sea. The ex-wife claimed that Klein is a well-known serial liar who is simply looking to be famous at the expense of an unfortunate tragedy in our lives. In 2016, more than a decade after this man disappeared, the Australian weekly news magazine, Women's Day, claimed that investigators found McDermott healthy and alive in another town in Mexico where he purportedly lived with a new girlfriend. None of these claims have ever been substantiated, and we want to make that clear. On November 7th, 2017, another magazine claimed it had evidence McDermott was alive after receiving photos which showed a man matching McDermott's description alongside a woman. And then on January 2nd, 2018, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation published another story where a man from Manitoba, Canada had claimed he was the photo that was taken in 2017, and it was a case of mistaken identity. As of today, December, 2022, Patrick McDermott has never been found. These three cases, all of which are very, very different, and all of which had very, very different outcomes, the victim has never been found. This is why I found them all very interesting and linked them into a series of disappearances. But if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFUpodcast at gmail.com. We also post all of the articles that we use in the show, all the research, everything we use in creating the show in our show notes. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!